This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Christina Stathopoulos, who is the analytics lead at Google. So Christina, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me on. I'm excited for our chat today. Yeah, so am I. Um, For the guests listening, I've just been practicing how to say Christina's surname for the last 30 seconds, just to make sure I got it right. So I think I think I did okay. Typical. No, but you did great. You did yeah. wonderful. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So um, where we always start, Christina, is by asking the guests to give us a, a brief introduction into their background and journey to date, because obviously I can never do that justice. So um, if you would. Yeah. So I'm originally from the U.S., from North Carolina, but I have been based in Madrid, Spain since 2012. And I, I would say I've followed a very unconventional journey into data. Um, But math and statistics, it was always my favorite subject growing up. So it all made sense that I would end up here. Um, I studied technical degrees for my bachelor's and my master's, both around analytics. But between my bachelor's and my master's, I moved from the U.S. to Spain to get the chance to live abroad. And that's where my journey kind of became this unconventional path. And once I arrived in Spain, I was working in something completely outside of my studies as a business English consultant. But after a couple years, and once I had learned the Spanish language, I pursued a master's in business analytics and big data. I used that to pivot myself back into my field of study. And from there, I worked briefly as a systems engineer at SAS Institute, the analytics software company, then on to Nielsen as a data engineer, and finally to Google, where I've been for almost four years now. And I've been working as a data specialist, most recently as an analytical lead at Waze. And I also do a lot on the side too. So I'm an adjunct professor at IE Business School. It's based out of Madrid. I guest lecture at other universities and I frequently do public speaking for conferences and such. So very active. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was obviously part and parcel of the reason for wanting to get you onto the podcast and obviously talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um Tell us a little about your career with Google and, and now Waze since, since you landed there. Yeah, I've been with Google for almost four years, like I said, and it's always been uh, positions around a data specialist. And I used to work on our core Google sales team for the Spain office. I was acting like as a tech person, but on a sales team and building a bridge between the data and the business. And I would work with some of our top international clients out of Spain. So clients that were based here, but had international presence. And I would advise them on their marketing and their overall business decisions, but with Google Power data. So things like Google search and Google ads. And then I changed to Waze just over a month ago. So super recent. 
and I'm working as an analytical lead, it's a similar position in the sense that I'm acting again as a data translator. So I'm using data, many times in this case, navigation data to advise our sales teams and directly our advertising clients around, around the data that we have and what they can do with Waze ads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Out of interest, is Waze big in Madrid? Because I remember I used to use it all the time when I lived in the States and the best feature was when it would tell you when there was a speed camera. That was the bit that yeah. I the most. <laughs> yeah, it's quite, it's very popular in the US. It's yeah. just growing in Spain. Spain right. is more of a, a growing market. I'm mainly working with the North America market, actually. For now, right. I'm working a lot with the US and Canada, some of our bigger markets. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes um, that makes sense. So I guess your role within the organization you talked there around being that translator both in your time at google and, and now the the, the sub-brand of of ways is there a kind of objective for you in all of this in terms of what you're tasked with achieving on a larger scale basis i mean you have to consider that i do sit within sales i'm, I'm in sales but on a separate more technical team uh, within the broader sales organization. So ultimately it, it is powered by sales, but I'm still acting as a bridge. So I'm a bridge really between data science engineering and pure sales. And what I'm tasked with is really finding unique and interesting data points, data stories, insights that we can use to drive marketing and business decisions, like I said before, with our top advertisers and empowering the sales team really with data to back up what they're trying to, to sell. And then as well, many times working as a partner with clients too. I mean, it's not just selling, but also working together and showing how they can even use our data as a bonus to help them guide other business decisions too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes, makes sense. So I guess, obviously you spoke about before you, when you first moved to Madrid, you were a business English consultant. Is that right? Yes, correct. So just bear with me here, but what, what did that entail exactly? Yeah, business English consultant. I did this because when I first came to Spain in 2012, I did not speak the language at the time. I actually started from zero with Spanish. Now I'm practically fluent. Um, but I, So I, I needed to find a job that would let me work in English for the time being. And I had also just finished my bachelor's degree. I was young. I didn't have experience. So I was very limited on what I could do. And I ended up finding a niche in the market, which was I realized that in Spain, and I've been living in the capital, Madrid, where most of the businesses are based, they have a very low level of English, especially in the executive suite. And it's becoming more and more important now, now that business is more international, it's becoming important that executives need to be able to communicate in English. So I started working like freelance and I would work with executives across different companies and we would work on their business English. So we would work on communication, on presentations, on reports, and I would really help them with this journey and improve their business English. So I did that for a few years and it worked out for me, but it ultimately wasn't what I wanted to do. I enjoy the education part and helping others, which is what I still do teaching but I wanted to get closer to my actual area of, of specialty. Yeah, yeah, which I guess leads me into why I asked you that quick question, Christina, which is obviously in the industry, we talk so much now around communication and that whole translation piece, right? And being, you know, presentation skills and storytelling skills and all of that type of stuff, all of that type of stuff that seemingly 
you were doing then for a different purpose, but you still do now as that translator in in business, right? Did did that did that help you on that journey in terms of polishing up your kind of storytelling and communication skills and being able to translate things, you know, from a business perspective? Absolutely. So it ended up being a bonus. It ended up really helping me that I spent these few years doing this business English consulting because it gave me a ton of experience um, communicating, educating, and then also working with like the, the executive level suite from a young age, knowing how how kind of the business goes, but from a very unique perspective, because in some, some businesses, I was working with the CEO. I was with him one-to-one, um, and it, it gave me a lot of just really good experience, and I was able to learn how to do better communication, in this case, kind of communicating, um, well, teaching them how to communicate better in English, and in turn, it helped me learn how to communicate better as well. Yeah. Yeah. Good. No, that's, that's really fascinating. So I guess what was, what was the trigger point for you that made you decide that, okay, whilst I'm enjoying this, I want to get back to that pathway of, you know, into data science and, you know, how did that all unfold? Yeah, I, I knew, like, I've always had this love for mathematics and statistics from a young age. So I knew that I wanted to work in this field. Um, To be honest, I was, I was the weirdo at school that I loved math class. I loved doing math exercises on the weekend. Uh, so I knew I wanted to work in something related to this. And once I had here in Spain, once I had a good control of the language, Spanish, then I decided it was time. Okay, now I can try to launch myself back into the statistics analytics field. I know the language, but I needed a way to do it. And there's many ways to do it. But in my case, what I decided to do was to pursue a master's and use that as a pivot. And it worked really well. Um, it, it, I'm happy with the results, of course. But how did I know it was the moment? I mean, I had done teaching, this, this side teaching thing for a few years. I didn't want to get stuck in it. And for me, the moment was when I realized, okay, I, I understand the language well enough. I'll, I think I'll be able to start working in this language. Now it's time for me to pivot and, and go for it. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. I guess with it being such a competitive field, and I know obviously we've come on a lot since then in terms of how many organizations out there now are trying to become data driven and all of that type of stuff. And it's, you know, it's it's kind of been a, a, a big boom. But what was it like back then for you in terms of trying to re-enter this space? in a foreign country where they speak a foreign language in what is effectively the, you know, the sexiest job of the 21st century, what, which everyone wants to do. How did that kind of play out? Yeah, I, I there was different, I felt different uh, levels of competitiveness. So I'll say competitive for sure was getting into Google. I won't argue with that. But before that, I didn't feel like the field was all that competitive. Like when I was looking for jobs in analytics after I did my master's, um, there were more opportunities and there were skilled professionals. So I saw a lot of opportunities out there. Um, the competitive part for me, though, in my case, just was that I was competing against native Spanish speakers for roles that obviously required Spanish here in Spain. So I had that very competitive piece. I had to really sell myself to be able to, to get a job. Um, so that was definitely tough, interviews in a second language, and I, I would not wish that on anyone, preparing technical interviews in a second language. Um, but then fast forward to when I was interviewing for Google, and it was very competitive. 
very, very competitive. I, I actually didn't get chosen in the first few interview processes that I did, um, but persistence was key. I stayed in touch and I also used every interview as a learning opportunity. And I eventually was offered a full-time position with, with the company, with Google. So being in a, in a competitive environment, I think the best thing you can do is keep a positive attitude and also persist. Make sure that you learn from your mistakes and remember that when one door closes, another opens. You need to look at it from, you know, the glass is half full perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that makes sense, right? Because it's um, for, for every person within the analytics and tech space, kind of Google is the, the pinnacle, right, <laughs> of, of this industry, I guess. So look, I guess just to frame it for the audience. So one of the one of the key reasons as to why I was very keen to get you onto the podcast to speak about the whole personal branding piece and being able to stand out from the crowd and the stuff you talked about there around selling having to sell yourself and obviously your situation was fairly unique given the language barriers and living in a foreign country and and, and things like that but I think the thing that I know it's about you Christina is that you're very good at putting yourself out there and that whole building that that brand on LinkedIn and I'm a massive advocate for that because I think it um, helps to generate opportunities um, as you know uh, across the across the spectrum was that something that you were conscious of back then and, and doing back then to kind of get yourself into Google um, how did you try and you know stand out from from the crowd in, in that perspective Absolutely. I couldn't agree better with the comments on, on LinkedIn and you do it as well. So you're a big believer in this, but being active, building a voice for yourself, I think it's incredibly important and it's overlooked and not this, this aspect is not taken advantage of by enough people. I think they don't realize what they're missing out on. Um, advice for others. So the first thing I would say is that um, I'm naturally introverted and I think this comes as a surprise to many. But I, I do much prefer staying at home on the weekend with a book than being out with friends, for example. So my advice for, for standing out in a crowd and especially introverts is that you do need to push yourself out of your shell. You need to push yourself out of your comfort zone. You need to build a voice for yourself. Um, in order to make this easier for you, I would say that you can, you can find things that you're passionate about. So find things that you're passionate about that you can dedicate yourself to. This is finding a passion within your professional endeavors, of course, but remember that we're all human. You need to find passions outside of work too. So pursue other things at this, on the side that could make you stand out. And this could be volunteer work, a pet project. It could be a podcast like, like you do, Kyle. Um, so diversify what you can offer and, and what you can bring to any workplace professionally and also personally and share that journey online. Mm -hmm. What have, and I'm thinking out loud here, Christina, what, what have been the results for you off the back of, of doing that and putting yourself out there? And I guess I'll, I'll frame that question for you. So a perfect example in my eyes was that, you know, if you rewind 12 months, right, we were in the midst of absolute chaos across the world. Um, and unfortunately that meant there was a lot of people being made redundant and losing their jobs and, you know, a whole host of tragic things were occurring. And what I noticed, and I don't know if you did too, there's a whole host of people came back to platforms like LinkedIn that I'd not seen for a long time. 
and all of a sudden started engaging with content, started doing X, Y, and Z, started participating in podcasts, started writing articles, started sharing their journey and their thoughts and all great stuff that both you and I are huge advocates for. But then what I've since noticed is as soon as they got a new job, boom, they've gone, they've gone again, right? And uh, for me, I think the, this whole thing only really works if you really invest yourself into it and it becomes something that's bigger than just something that benefits you. So I'm just keen to kind of get your thoughts on on that, but what the results were and, and I guess why you've decided to to stick with it for want of a better phrase. I saw the same thing uh, the, when, when the pandemic hit and everyone had to move online. I also saw LinkedIn took off and online events, uh, podcasts, things like that. Uh, and even my own, like I, I was, I was active before this all happened, but then when this hit and everyone came online, it just made the network even more active in general. And it, it was like an explosion. Um, I think you're right. I, I've seen very few people stay consistent with it. So they'll get on the platform and they'll use it as an ends to a mean to get a job. And then, like you said, then they disappear. That's it. But that's not what you're supposed to be using it for. This is for building a community. And this is for something that should be for the long term. I've been doing it for years. Um, and that means posting every day, being consistent with your content, but also unique and entertaining and educating for everyone, um, being active in discussions, contributing something to your industry, whether it be analytics or something else, but participate in events. Nowadays, most of them are online, but you can still network within those events. Um, you can, you know, do things like, you know, do side projects like you're doing this podcast or write articles. But all of this is beneficial because what it does is it creates this brand name for you. So when people hear the word analytics or whatever your specialty may be, they will automatically think of your name. They'll associate you to the field and, and this topic. And that's, that's really good once you get that strong association and you don't know what opportunities it could bring to you further on. Just because you got a job now, you might be looking for a change in a year or two or later down the line, or maybe you want to diversify your income and you want to do something else on the side. But once you establish this connection between analytics and your name, uh, now you're becoming, you know, you're becoming something more. Um, and it, it really just, you don't know what you're, what doors you're closing if you don't at least try for this and try to make that automatic association. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think one of the biggest obstacles that I see or pushbacks, if you will, from people in our industry, you know, it's time. I don't have time to do this. I've, I've got, I've got a day job and I'm the first person to always say, look, you've got to look at this as an investment, you know? Um, and, and we, you know, from a day-to-day, -day, my business perspective, you know, we work at that senior end of the market typically. And I'm the first person to say that this whole conversation that we're having couldn't be truer at that level, right? Because really senior level roles often don't get posted on adverts and stuff, right? And um, if, if an executive is looking around the marketplace and is active on things like LinkedIn and they're looking for a CDO, you know, naturally the first people they're going to call are the people that they know and see their name constantly, right? Of course. Um, so it's, I, I, I always have that conversation around, you've got to look at this as, as an investment. So glad that you share the same thoughts. I guess in terms of, 
moving into the kind of skills required um, to, you know, for, for people maybe that are, are on on that pathway and on that journey, more, more junior in their careers, let's say, in terms of hard and soft skills and how you identify what areas to focus and, and kind of specialize on, um, is there any areas that you kind of advise and, and recommend to, to people on that data science journey? There are. If you're starting out in data science for the hard skills side, I would say find a couple of programming or tool specialties, but do not try to learn everything. That's impossible. Don't get overwhelmed with the landscape, but find a couple things to focus on. So pick concentration areas. For me, the most important hard skill is SQL. If, if you're going to work in data science, every single data scientist out there they need to have a solid understanding of SQL to build upon. So that's a great place to start, I would say. And then the, for the soft skills side, of course, communication. Um, if you're early on in your career, in order to work on communication, I would say don't say no. So take every opportunity you get to present in front of others. So this might be group projects that you present to your class, for example or um, let's say maybe helping a helping run a student club. I did this actually in my master's. That gets you the opportunity to run meetings or to host events. So there are ways to find where you can get in front of people and work on those communication skills. And then kind of connected to that is people skills as well. And this is really important for introverts too. Uh, so knowing how to bring yourself out of your shell and connect with others. And for this, I would actually, I would recommend a book that I recently read. You might have heard of it, Kyle. It's uh, People's Skills for Analytical Thinkers. That's definitely something you can check out to work on that. So it would be communication skills and people skills. Anyone can work on this, especially important to develop from the beginning of your journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you give us an insight into what you mean by people skills? And the reason I, I asked that, Christina, is I think, as with a lot of things in our industry, terms often get used interchangeably, possibly when they shouldn't, right? You know, so we hear all the time, you know, soft skills, commercial skills, communication skills, people skills, they're all kind of clubbed together under this big umbrella of things that aren't technical effectively, but naturally they mean very different things, right? So communication, I think, is obvious. But when you're talking about people skills, what what do you mean exactly? Yeah, this is and this is a complicated question, um, and it does have a lot of overlap with communication. So they really do get grouped together. People skills, for me, I would say, is just making sure that you come across positively to others. So, um, like, you don't go to people just because you want to get something out of them. It's this give and take relationship. So making sure that you come across correctly with people. I don't know if that's the best word, but come across in the right way to others so that you can get what you want out of this relationship, but also so that um, they feel that they can get something out of it. And this does connect a lot with communication because in the end it is being able to communicate well with them. Um, it's you know the way that you speak, the way that you present yourself, but also people skills requires that you listen and you understand what the other is saying and you adapt to, to their words, their behaviors, their wants and their needs. Yeah, yeah. Got to confess, Christina, slightly loaded question there and you answered it exactly how I was hoping you would. Um, and I guess 
bring drawing back to the correlation around building a brand online, right? It's exactly the same concept in terms of, you know, what's in it for them and what's in it for you and being, I guess, authentic is, is what you were trying to allude to in terms of, um, that's the word. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> in terms of how you were trying to approach it, and that's the exact same thing that we talk about on social platforms and LinkedIn, right? You know, don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to please people. Um, just be yourself, and ultimately, that's that should be good enough. But you've got to invest some time and energy to to do that because it's not just going to seek you out effectively. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so the whole communication translation storytelling all of that you know effectively softer more commercially nuanced type of uh, of skill this area intrigues me and i'd love to get your thoughts on this now obviously you know a lot of the guests on this podcast are very senior cdo type of, of figures if you will and i think there's this huge I don't want to say disconnect because that's too strong of a word, but there's this there's this thing in the market at the moment where we kind of categorize people based on technical and then, you know, commercial in inverted commas. And there's a lot of debate in the industry around, you know, if should we be expecting people who are more junior in their careers or starting out on this journey to be able to have that commerciality? Um, but I guess... Some people say, well, yes, we need to be advising and pushing them to be upskilling themselves in that area because it's hugely important. And other people say, well, you know, if we hired a, you know, an accountant, would we be expecting them to run the whole finance department, you know, straight out of university? No, of course we wouldn't. So I think it's about getting that balance right. But obviously that's something that you seem to have, I guess, kind of thought about quite early in your career. And that's stood you in very good stead so how do you you know what's the importance of developing those translation storytelling communication skills you know to to, to have to, to i guess give you some more commercial awareness if if you will how, how important is that in the whole kind of journey it's incredibly important and i think especially so when we're talking about the tech and the analytics world you're right like with your analogy with an accountant they're not going to run the finance department from day one but um, when you when we talk about communication, commercial skills, it's also not going to come overnight. You need to work on that over time. As a junior, you're in the moment where you need to you need to be building upon that for later on in your career. Now, when we focus on the tech and analytics world, communication is incredibly important. But because many times we're talking about complex topics and complex topics that many that that need to be translated to the business, the executive suite and they don't understand what's going on within all the data. So you have almost a superpower if you learn how to communicate those complex topics in simpler terms to broader audiences within the organization or externally. And that superpower ends up opening doors for you later on. So I think this is just, I cannot stress the importance of it enough, putting yourself out there and learning how to communicate and to storytell and like I mentioned before, it can start with small things. You're not going to be, you know, a junior, but presenting next to the CEO at a meeting next week. Probably not. But you can take advantage of smaller work meetings to speak up. You can do presentations at school. Um, but whatever it is, get yourself in front of crowds. Whenever you have a chance, take it. Learn to manage those nerves that come with public speaking. Um, and as you develop that skill, 
then you can eventually work up into public speaking in front of larger crowds, um, which again opens doors for you professionally. And, and I think the key for this also is practice. We haven't talked about that yet, but if you, once you get really into public speaking, one of the most important things is practice. You don't go up, the CEO going and giving this presentation, it's probably not the first time that they've run through that deck. Uh, they've practiced. So you also need to practice. Practice makes perfect. And then I would say that kind of a, a side effect of all this when you're working on your communication and storytelling skills, remember that it's also going to help you perform better in interviews because now you know how to transmit your thoughts effectively. Um, you're going to do better at interviews too. So I think it has a lot of these like side effects that we don't think about, but communication is just, it's applicable all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And I guess wh where does the commercial awareness come into all this, right? Cause we, you know, we hear it all the time, right? You know, data science, it, let's start with the business strategy. Let's start with the business problem and work backwards to provide a solution or a product or w whatever it may be. Um, I guess to coin that, you've probably seen and heard me be quite vocal, Christina, about the way the majority of organizations try to attract talent, in my opinion, is flawed. And we've created this cycle that we're struggling to break now, right? Most organizations, you, you mean, you'll have seen hundreds of these job descriptions, I'm sure, you know, it's just a list of technical requirements. And typically nowhere on those job descriptions does it talk about storytelling or communication or commercial awareness or you know, translation skills. It doesn't speak about any of that type of stuff. And I think we're in a place now where very soon organizations are going to have to change the way that they look to attract talent based on that. Because my opinion is just like we're speaking about here, you know that it's so important. Everybody in the industry knows it's so important. Yet I feel that if people want to get the job, they've got to focus on the tech skills. That's the only way that they're going to get the foot through the door, which in my opinion is is flawed. But where does that kind of commercial awareness come in? Is there a way to, I guess, practice and get better at that side of things, right? Because you can be the best translator in the world at taking something from, you know, technical solution and translating it into English for a, for a CEO, for example. But if that's not the right solution right for the business then it might not get used so uh, w where does that kind of commerciality piece fit into that equation because i guess it's really important but again we can't be expecting people that have just left university to kind of know this stuff right yes i think you're touching on well commercial uh, business domain knowledge as well and you're right many jobs they do focus on in this field they focus on the technical aspects which sometimes i, I would counter as well that sometimes it is okay um, just to give you an example but before I was working as a data engineer at Nielsen and it was a bit more back office I mean I didn't necessarily have to do so much of the commercial side let's say um, so in this case they were testing the the technical side more but at the same time when I went to the interview I still had to have this commercial aspect of myself to sell myself and I ended up locking in that job all in Spanish, the entire interview in Spanish. Very uncomfortable for me, but I was still able to do it. So in this case, my commercial side helped sell myself to lock in a role, even if it wasn't so important later on, being able to, to sell, let's say. 
Um, but I did still, what I ended up doing actually, even though it was more of a, you know, the operations side of the business, I continued developing my commercial skills on the side. And I would actually volunteer to like run events, to host, but finding ways that even though I'm more this operations back office, working with the data all day, um, I would find ways to even put myself out there when it was not a part of the role at all. They did not expect that of me. It wasn't in my scope, but I found ways to kind of mix with other teams, get in front of crowds. And they were, they were actually really impressed by it. And it helped me grow within the company. I was given more responsibility because they saw me doing that. And, and really, ultimately, that's what you want to do. You want to grow your career. And to do that, you're probably going to have to move away from these technical jobs at one point. You're going to have to expand beyond that. And you're probably going to be you know, running teams. Um, you're going to be giving presentations. So maybe at the beginning, you don't have to focus so much on the technical, uh, on the, sorry, on the soft skills, commercial side, but eventually you will have to get there if you want to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I think I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for the fact that any team, there's always a place for really technical people. Right. And I think sometimes my message gets um, misconstrued that I'm kind of against technical people. That's certainly not, not the case. Um, but I, you know, I think that the best teams are the ones that have that blend of skills, right? Where they've got people that can do various parts of that puzzle really well. And, and that complements each other. I think it's interesting what you were saying there, because that's effectively you building your personal brand in the real world, right? As opposed to doing it on platforms like LinkedIn by putting yourself out there, by trying to speak, by trying to share, by trying to network and all of that type of stuff, which is, which is fascinating. Um, talk to me about, your experience as a woman because the number of women in data engineering is very very slim the number of women in data full stop is very very slim um talk to us about your experience i know you're involved in a few um you know a few initiatives around women in tech and women in data interested to hear your thoughts on how we reach some kind of parity from a gender perspective within our industry um because i guess what i see is the parity levels are nowhere near 50 50 but at the more junior level uh, you know as people enter the industry there's certainly more parity as people progress through their careers that number dwindles quite dramatically um as an and as ex- example you know i host various data and analytics leadership type events there might be 20 people in a round table event and there may be three or four women, possibly, you know what I mean? Um, why is that the case? And how do, you know, what type of things are, are, are these initiatives talking about to try and get to that point of, of kind of some, you know, some more balance, let's say? You said, I know, you know what I mean? I, I do know what you mean. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it makes me think of like what you compared with the the meeting or whatever with, with 20 people and three of them are women. When I go, it makes me think of when I go to speak at events, or at least pre-pandemic, when I would go in person to speak at events, analytics, data events, I would very often be one of the few women on the stage every single time. And it didn't matter what country I was in. So I did a lot of public speaking with IE Business School, the university that I work for. They would actually fly me out to different countries to give these like public speaking tours. And I would host events and speak at larger conferences. And no matter the country I went to, the same thing happened. I would be one of very few women on the stage. It did not fail, no matter where I was. 
Um, so there's definitely this huge problem, a lack of women in the industry, but especially as you get to more leadership levels and or uh, public speaking in that arena, getting their, getting their voice heard. And I think um, the first step to really resolving this is of course accepting it. Like you said, you've noticed what's going on. So we need more awareness of the problem um, one, just understanding what's going on. And one thing I would say to do this is a book recommendation. I have to throw in book recommendations. Uh, there's a newer book, it's called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Highly suggest this book, Invisible Women. It'll kind of open up your eyes to what's, everything that's going on. And even as a woman, I didn't realize more than half of the things that the book talks about and when I, when I read it, I would be like, oh, that's right. I never thought about this. And I'm a woman. So if I wasn't aware of it, I can't even imagine, you know, the other sex, how, how unaware they are of this, of this problem. Um, so I think, you know, just being more aware of what's going on, um, ensuring that others get a voice at the table, having fairer and more diverse hiring pipelines for sure. Um, when you open up a, an executive level position, make sure you've got a good, solid, diverse hiring pipeline to get there. Um, also speaking up when you hear something unacceptable. So it's not always the woman's place to speak up on behalf of themselves. It's quite um, uncomfortable. So if you are a male, for example, use your privilege in that case to speak up for them. It's more comfortable for you. Um, why? And you mentioned about how we have this, um, this re, it's really unequal once we get to the leadership uh, level. Absolutely. At the more junior levels, it's getting better. We're definitely seeing a mix. I think there's still a lot of room for improvement, but it's still more even uh, the junior level when you compare to the leadership level. And it, I think one big problem for this, um, there's a couple things. One is the unconscious biases that we all have. And there's one, for example, that's called the similarity bias. So what it does is that as a manager, it kind of pushes you to hire a candidate based on their similarity to yourself and your team. Now, if you are a male or you are on a male-dominated team, then you're gonna, this bias is going to push you to hire others similar to you, which, of course, in a male-dominated industry will work against the females. So keeping in mind these biases that we have. Um, and then one last thing to add is also um, how we assign the, the leadership, this leadership word, it many times gets assigned almost as a male attribute. So women many times get forced to change themselves and blend into the current leadership style of the company, many times male dominated companies. So instead of being able to lead in their own style naturally, they many times get pushed to change who they are. And this is uncomfortable when you're constantly second guessing yourself and you're trying to fit into the accepted norm. And it's honestly exhausting in the long term. So many will just give up on those aspirations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you seen, Christina, is there a reason? I know we, we touched upon there that at the entry level, for example, there is more parity. There's still work to be done. But within these communities, in terms of women in tech and women in data that you're involved in, is does there seem to be a reason as to why women aren't necessarily as attracted to get into the industry? 
or is it is it a case of their you know they're kind of put off by the the dominance of the other sex so is is there a is there a kind of you know uh, an appreciate probably sweeping generalization here but is there you know is there a reason for for why this happens I think there's a lot of there's a lot of different factors that are affecting it and if you read that book that I said Invisible Women you might get some clues into some reasons I think there's lots of different things. One thing could be just a lack of like female mentorship, female leaders. You're not seeing them in the news. You're not seeing them online. So as a young woman, um, you're getting maybe pushed into a more female field, even unconsciously. So be it. Um, so there's these kind of factors that might be slowly pushing people towards other other fields. And as well, just this, this like unconscious um, assignment of roles to female versus male that you automatically associate, oh, engineer, this is male, um, homemaker, this is female, um, interior designer, this is female. You're automatically associating this. And then from a young age, little girls are getting pushed that way. You know, they're getting pushed to play with Barbie dolls, whereas little boys are getting pushed to build with Legos and, and play with toy cars. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that even start from a young age that make that separation. Nowadays, thankfully, you are seeing a lot more, um, a lot more mix, a lot more opportunities, even from a young age, because you have things like girls who code, we're trying to get, you know, little girls into technology. Um, you see girls now interested in Lego sets, you're trying to break these, these stereotypes by gender. So that's great from a young age. Um, and then, you know, juniors, so we're seeing this improvement at the junior level. Technology is a cool thing to work in now, even for male, female, it doesn't matter. It's cool to work in that industry. So even from a young age, it's, it's, that's helping. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing the, the junior level a little bit more mixed, but again, it's not, I don't see it at the 50, 50, not even close. We still have a lot of work to do there. Um, so that would definitely be, we need to help get that 50, 50 at the junior level, because that will also help the leadership. I mean, once we have more females, um, entering in the bottom, they'll, they'll trickle up to the top and it'll help also even out the leadership. Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, I've been involved in a number of initiatives over the last four or five years where we've spoken about and gone into schools. I think we need to start addressing these issues at a much younger age. You know, it's great going into universities to speak, right? But we've kind of missed the boat at that point, right? Because these students have typically already chosen what they're going to study and they're on a certain pathway that becomes really hard to reverse, you know? And I'm involved in a number of initiatives with universities in the UK, for example, where um, we're talking about, you know, let's say less conventional areas of study. So subjects maybe like, um, you know, social sciences, so psychology, sociology, um, when I'm presented to um, a a full lecture theatre, I think it was like 85% female, right, that are studying these topics. And what they do as part of these programmes is effectively um, kind of quantitative analysis, right? So they've got some of the foundational skills to maybe enter our industry the crazy thing is is that they don't even know that there's a commercial career in data for them how crazy is that you know we've got a 20 year old female that's doing this thing day to day with a you know psychology hat on 
yet, you know, Google might hire that person to work in data and on analytics and analytics, but this person doesn't even doesn't have a clue that this field exists. So that's why I've been going in there to kind of speak about that type of stuff. And, you know, the other side to that coin is that it's not always necessarily about the technical skills, because you're right, you know, if we rewind however many years, tech has normally been associated with little boys right or or boys growing up and, and that type of thing so this even now there's still roles for females in in the data analytics world um despite that kind of lack of parity um so it's it's really interesting I and mean, we could talk about this all day i'm sure um so as we start to wrap up then christina obviously you've you've kind of you know, plugged a few a few books throughout this. I know you're a you're a massive uh, a massive bookworm. Um, you've talked about self development a lot throughout this, which is is great. And I know that that kind of leads into the book a week challenge that you're you know constantly posting on on LinkedIn, which is which is really cool. Why do you do this? What are you getting out of it? What's your advice for people? The Book a Week Challenge. I love to talk about this. It started It started as a personal goal. And then that was many years ago. And it grew into a community initiative that now I, I host over LinkedIn. And really, I do it in an effort to push others to pick up better habits, um, like reading books, and also to foster a continuous learning mindset. Because by reading, you don't realize, but you're expanding your, your knowledge, you're, you're changing the way your brain works. And I also personally use it as a, as a good excuse to disconnect from screens. We are on our phones, our laptops all day. So because of this, I only read physical paperback books. I don't do audio, I don't do eBooks. I have all of my books physically. You can see one of my bookshelves behind me. Um, so I highly recommend this for our listeners. And even this year, I started promoting the book a month challenge because I do recognize that not everyone's schedule is so forgiving to be able to read a book a week. But I do believe that everyone can finish at least one book a month. Um, one book a month, that's 12 books a year. That's probably 12 more than you were planning on reading. <laughs> so it's yep. it's a good and I think fairly easy challenge to pick up once you get into the habit. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I think it's it's great what you're doing and that whole promotion thing around, you know, better habits, better mindset helps within your career without a shadow of a doubt. Um, okay. How do people reach you, Christina, if they want to reach out to you, if they've got questions about what they've heard today, want to talk to you about anything, get your advice, pick your brains, what's the best way for them to, to reach out? It's definitely LinkedIn. I'm not really active on other platforms, so you can always find me on LinkedIn. And as well, you can follow the hashtag book a week challenge if you're interested in that, because then you can see my posts as well as everyone else in the community who is talking about that. Nice. Christina, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, feel that we could probably sit here for three or four hours and, and chat about this type of, of stuff. But um, really fascinating conversation. I think it's going to be massively insightful for the listeners um, and they're going to get a lot out of this. So thank you again for taking the time to speak with us and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. No problem. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. 
If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Yeah.